Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Hal Poe on the life and work of British writer C.S. Lewis in the latter years of his life. It's an anthology of four different radio broadcasts that he made during World War II. He had already published them in slim little volumes. Uh, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe was the first one. In 1952, he edited those and put them together into one volume. And it's been such an influential volume. I'm the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture, and Chuck Colson was converted through reading Mere Christianity, and untold numbers of people have had that same experience. Hal Poe, next. Today, C.S. Lewis scholar Dr. Harry Lee Poe returns to discuss the third book in a trilogy on the life of C.S. Lewis, titled The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From War to Joy, from 1945 to 1963. This period of his life was touched by disappointments and tragedy, but it was also filled with significant relationships like his wife, Joy, and writings like The Chronicles of Narnia and surprised by joy. Dr. Poe is the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University. Hal, what can you tell us about the theme C.S. Lewis became especially interested in during these latter years and the books these themes showed up in? Yes, and some people uh, take the position that Lewis gave up apologetics um, in the late 1940s following the writing of uh, his book on miracles And there was a discussion of that book um, at a meeting of the Socratic Club. The Socratic Club was a student organization where Lewis presided, where they examined questions of faith uh, uh, from different perspectives. He would regularly have atheists as speakers, but Lewis always responded. And Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a... um, a philosopher and um, uh, specializing in linguistic analysis, um, took exception with um, one of his chapters in um, Miracles. And uh, they had an engaging conversation about that at the meeting after she had given her talk. It came to be called the the, uh, Lewis Anscombe debate. (laughs) Now, the interesting thing is that the philosophers who were there Uh, were unaware that a debate had taken place. It was just a matter of clarifying terminology. Mm -hmm. But the literary people who were not there, (laughs) who commented on it later, said it was a huge debate and Lewis lost the debate, which which is fascinating. Um, And I think that has tended to be the the story that has prevailed. And and so the, the argument is after 1947, he never wrote any more um, Mm. apologetics because he'd been defeated in this, uh, debate. The problem with that view is he actually wrote miracles during the war. It wasn't released until 1947, but he had finished it and he had already said, all right, now I've, I've said all I need to say on that subject. And he was going back to his first love, which was, uh, was storytelling. And um, it's not that he gave up apologetics. 
It's that he shifted his apologetics to something that he thought was going to be more effective going forward. And um, so the, the Chronicles of Narnia is the fruit of that decision. He, he uh, had given a lecture to some youth ministers at the end of the war. Uh, they'd asked him to explain to them how to do apologetics. And he, um, and he later published this, this uh, talk, and it's found in God in the Dock. Um, on apologetics, simple title. And he gives uh, some pointers, some apologetic issues to address. And then he said, when he was talking about some issues related to science, while we're on the subject, he said, what we need are not more little Christian books, but more little books by Christians on every subject with the Christianity latent. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that was his big project throughout the 1950s. He wrote a number of books, academic books, related to literature. He published his um, English literature in the 16th century, uh, study in words, toward the end of his life, the discarded image, which was um, the book based on the lectures that he had been giving at Oxford and Cambridge for, for several decades. And so, um, Reflections on the Psalms was another one. He, um, but they're not philosophical arguments. Um, we sometimes confuse apologetics when we think it's uh, uh, arguments for the existence of God or philosophical arguments for a position. And so, Lewis was saying that um, the best apologetics is when your faith permeates your writing. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that creates uh, a subtext. So that's what he was devoting himself to. And he was particularly concerned with the literary community. That was his community. And he saw it just um, uh, going down the tube. And so uh, he addressed a lot of his work uh, to that particular community. Um, he'd already said the main things he wanted to say in terms of philosophical arguments um and so he was he was shifting and and that latent uh expression of christianity he that it should permeate his writing that would explain his approach to things like the chronicles of narnia the lion the witch and the wardrobe and and so on that it was exactly and what the chronicles do they don't argue for the christian faith what they do in story form is show how reasonable it is it makes sense. The death of Aslan might have been a terrible thing, but it made sense. And um, mm-hmm. the resurrection made sense. And that's, that's the power of the story. You don't have to argue or prove something. Um, you show the coherence of it. And um, I think he's very successful at that at a number of different uh Christian doctrinal issues. And interestingly, in in terms of apologetics, giving a defense for the Christian faith, uh, obviously, Mere Christianity was written in this period, and that's considered one of the premier uh, apologetic works. He published it in 1952. And um, uh, I remember the first time I read it, I really liked the first uh, half of the book. 
And then I didn't understand what happened. It's like he changed the subject and was doing something else. And it, it didn't hit me exactly where I was at that particular time. And the reason is it's not a book in the traditional sense of a book that takes one theme and, and goes from uh, beginning to end. It's an anthology of four different radio broadcasts that he made during World War II. And um, he had already published them in slim little volumes. Uh, right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. Um, uh, was the was the first one. And so he in 1952 he edited those and put them together into one volume. And it's been such an influential volume. I'm the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture, and Chuck Colson was converted through reading Mere Christianity, and untold numbers of people have had that same experience. And in 1947, C.S. Lewis found himself on the cover of Time magazine, and I'm wondering, (laughs) what can you tell us about that, and what were his impressions? How did he feel about the treatment, uh, his treatment? he hated it. Mm. He, He just hated it. He hated the picture. He hated being on the cover. <laughs> he thought that the article itself uh, didn't do a very good job of representing him. But then Lewis was a shy man. He valued his privacy. And um, I, it, I think it was a, a, um, a big laugh in Oxford that C.S. Lewis found himself on the cover of an American magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was, uh, I think the timing is interesting because um, Americans had rationing during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, food was in short supply. Um, luxuries were non-existent. Gasoline, tires. But when the war was over, then there was the boom and there was plenty. Not so in England. In England, they continued to ration until after 1952. So they, they understood privation during time of war. What they did not understand was why these dreadful shortages once the war was over. And um, so Lewis was the beneficiary of um, numerous uh, care packages. And that term care package developed after World War II hmm. as um Uh, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans sent food parcels to uh, Europe to to feed people, food, clothing, tools. And uh, Lewis had been faithfully answering all these little letters that his fans in America had been writing. And after the war, he found them sending him canned goods and uh, one uh, doctor in Baltimore regularly sent him hams and he, he, he got a number of hams. Um, and so uh, I, I write about the, this um, phenomenon and how Lewis then shared what he received with all of his friends. He didn't take the food home. He stored it at his rooms in college so that Mrs. Moore, that mother of the, his, his friend from world war one, um, who'd been living with him ever since World War I. Her son died in the war, and Lewis was taking care of her. But she was a miser and a tyrant, and he dared not let her get control of that food or it would just stay in their house and rot. <laughs> so, um, so he <clears throat> distributed it from uh, his rooms in college, and she never knew about it. He would bring some home from time to time, but 
uh, he was he was very generous. You know, Hal, I think one um, question that comes up in people's minds when you talk about somebody like a C.S. Lewis, you wonder what were the influences on him that did gave him this uh of course he, he was blessed with an intellect and all of that but his understanding of the christian faith and, and you write uh you talk a bit a bit not in great detail but about his personal devotional life and the role of prayer and of scripture in his life uh, can you talk about that a little bit uh how, how uh, his relationship with the lord yes um uh, every day he had uh, private devotion time. He read uh, the Psalms over and over and over, and um, he would go through those um, and then prayer. And we we can see that he had um, don't know what form it took, but some sort of prayer list. He was regularly praying for specific people, and we know that from the letters that that he wrote. So. He had a regular prayer life. He had a regular devotional life. Um, He was reading the Bible, um, but he also read uh, devotional literature, and that began before he was a Christian. He read the Pilgrim's Progress, I think, four or five times Hmm. before he became a Christian, and he he loved it. Hmm. He read a number of classics of Christian devotion before he became a Christian. And when you think about it, um, so he became a Christian um, uh, when he was about, what, 30, 33 years old, something like that. And within a, uh, a few years, well, no, actually within a few months, he wrote his first apologetic piece, The Pilgrim's Regress. And so how in the world can some brand new Christian write such powerful apologetics? And the reason I think he was able to do it um, first of all, all Christians are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit of God um, uses us, works upon us. But he had done the, the heavy lifting um, of reading uh, as an atheist. Uh, his specialty was medieval literature, and he couldn't understand the medieval literature unless he read the theology uh, that had informed the medieval literature. That meant he had to master Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, and he had to read the church fathers from the first three centuries of the church, and he had to know the Bible, um, not as a believer, but just as an educated person. So that when he um, uh, was saved, when he became a Christian, when he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, um, then all of this was at his disposal, and suddenly it was making sense and falling into place. And um, so um, that, that's what fascinated me early on about his, his teenage years, that his reading in his teenage years, um, pleasure reading, became what he did for a living uh, in his later life, we wound up studying English literature and did a degree in one year because he'd already done the reading as a teenager. But then um, his um, reading as an atheist, preparing him to write his first big book on the allegory of love, prepared him to be an apologist. <laughs> um, so it, he had a healthy understanding of the providence and sovereignty of God. Um, 
from a pre-Reformation perspective, a, a an Augustinian and early church perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason why he's appealed to the Catholic tradition, Reformed tradition, Orthodox tradition, free church tradition, um, because his theological formation is really pre-Reformation and patristic and Augustinian um, <laughs> before we had all the schisms. <laughs> Well, our time's going so quickly, how I, I better get to his relationship with Joy, David Man Gresham, and his wife for, for a brief amount of time um, because of, because of uh, health, poor health on her part, and then, of course, her, her dying. Uh, what, what can you tell us about her, who she was, and how they met, how the relationship developed, the marriage? Yes, it's, a, it's, 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 quite, a <laughs> it's quite a story, really. And... Um, Oh, the lines are drawn. People take sides on whether she's a good person, a bad person, hmm. um, and what all was going on there. I've, I have relied on um, primary sources, the letters that she wrote, that Lewis wrote, that others wrote um, about what happened on particular days and who was doing what. Um, her husband, Bill Gresham, was a... Um, uh, a brutal alcoholic. Warney was a happy alcoholic. You know, there. His brother. His brother, Lewis's brother, was a was a happy alcoholic. Hmm. Uh, um, but but um, Bill was a brutal one. He hmm. um, broke a bottle over his young boy's head, Douglas's head. Um, he was he was a violent man when he was drunk. Um. She was trying to finish her book, uh, Smoke on the Mountain, which is a, uh, uh, an interpretation of the Ten Commandments. Hmm. Um, and she decided she was going to go to England and do it, just get out of New York, get away from him. Her cousin came to stay with the family to take care of things while she, she was gone. And um, as soon as the cousin moved in, she and Bill started an affair. Hmm. Um Joy was in London. She didn't go. She she didn't move to Oxford. She she'd been corresponding with Lewis, um, but she went to to London and and only saw Lewis uh, a couple of times. Um, Lewis invited her to uh, come to the Kilns for Christmas, and we might think, golly, that's that's unusual. But he had actually invited several American correspondents to visit the kilns. And, and so a number of them had done that. And she was just another one that he invited to do that. Um, I think she was really interested in him, really taken with him, probably had a crush on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was while she was there at Christmas time that she got the letter from uh, Bill uh, essentially saying uh, he wanted a divorce. Um, so, um, from there, it just got very complicated. Mm. Um, she did not move to Oxford until Lewis moved to Cambridge. So um, right in that hinge time was when she went to, to Oxford, not living in the same time. Lewis was home on the weekends. He came home Saturday afternoon and left Monday afternoon. Um, so he was at home with Warney. Um, you know, for those two days. And so he would see her regularly. The word came that she had, uh, was not going to have her visa renewed. 
and would have to go back to the United States. I'm not sure about that, Hmm. uh, simply because we don't have any other evidence that she was having a problem with her visa. She wrote about all the gory details of her life in her letters, but I can't find anything in her letters about a visa problem. Hmm. The only way we know about it is is because Lewis told a couple of his friends um, when he said he was going to marry Joy in a civil marriage um, to extend to her his citizenship so she could stay in in England. That That was the official story. And only a few people knew that they had gotten married in a civil marriage. She kept her home and Lewis kept his and they didn't live together. And Lewis just thought it was a formality and it didn't really matter because it wasn't really marriage since it wasn't really Christian marriage. And uh, Tolkien was just horrified by that reasoning. And um, I, I think at that point, Lewis is probably rationalizing more than anything else. But in any event, one thing led to another. She, um, she contracted cancer and um, once in the hospital, dying, uh, Lewis then wanted to have a Christian marriage. So they married in the hospital. And from his letters during that period, he's assuming that she will die soon and will never leave the hospital. That was the expectation. But the person who performed the wedding also had a reputation as a healer. Hmm. Um, he had had several experiences with with healing. And uh, frankly, most pastors have. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly have. And uh, most pastors I know have had experiences with um, healing that just went beyond any rational yeah. explanation. And so um, she, um, she uh, went into remission, was able to come back to the kilns. She was in a body cast for, golly, how long? Six months? I don't remember exactly, something like that, about six months, I think, and very frail um, as the operation uh, on her leg um, shortened one leg by several inches, and so she always walked with a cane after that. It took a terrible toll on her. If you look at pictures, she looks like a very old woman in 1958. but she was just in her early forties. Hmm. Um, and so the, the change between 1950 and 1958 the photographs that we had, it just, the disease just had, it took a terrible toll. And most of your listeners know are familiar with cancer and how dreadful it is. But anyway, they had three happy years together before she died in 1960. And then the book, a grief observed grew out of that. Yes. Uh, a grief obju- observed probably, uh, certainly the finest book on grief that I know anything about. And um, having been a pastor and dealt with so many people who've gone through grief, uh, I've seen a lot of the literature. But um, one thing that I think is has misleading for people, there's a, uh, uh, certainly with the, the movie Shadowlands, mm-hmm. the two movies, uh, a lot of people have the impression that uh, this book covers several years of Lewis's life and this long drawn out um, grieving process, it actually only covers about two and a half weeks. He, uh, she died at the end of July 
And uh, toward the end of August, one of his friends was uh, coming to visit him, and he had finished the manuscript. And um, ahead of the friend visiting, he he wrote him to tell him he wanted him to to read this manuscript that he'd written. So it, it really only covers about two and a half weeks. And 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 the a grief observed, um, it 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 has, in in a sense, the latter part. It doesn't it change. The focus of yes, it. Yes, you see the you see the initial um, uh, shock, then anger, and of course you lash out at God, and um, uh, then the numbness and the denial, and all these different streams that go into the experience of grief. And he's, and he said um, a famous passage. Um, he'd never known. No one had ever told him that grief was so much like fear. And um, so he says many, many things, but yes, uh, toward the end, he's coming out of it and his faith in God has never been shaken, but what he's doing is just expressing the pain and the, the, um, the agony of it. Um, and um, then he, he's, um, he, he moves into a period of calm and peace, it, he never gets over the death because you, you don't get over the death of someone you deeply love when mm-hmm. two have become one. Um, and so there's that, that lingering sorrow, but, um, but it is not really the crisis of faith that some people have made it. So he, he lived an additional, I think, three years or so after? Three years. Lived three more years, yes. And he had his own health issues, his own decline. Uh, how, how did he view that? And I know I've got to let you go here in just a moment, but how did he view, come to grips with his own his Very own decline? peacefully, um, yes, and it, that's a, a sign of his faith. I t- I'll talk about it some in the book, but he, um, all the things he really liked, he loved to eat, he loved to take these long walks, and everything he most loved, he could no longer do. <laughs> and he said it had amazed him that as his ability to do them disappeared, so did the desire. And so he wasn't grieving the loss of, you know, those those pleasures, um, that the desire was gone. Uh, he took delight in the memory of the long walks and, and that sort of thing. But um, he was he was quite at peace about that. And that's that's one of the remarkable things, um, such is the nature of grace, um, the grace to bear it. Well, the book is The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From War to Joy, from 1945 to 1963. It's the third, the final uh, book in this three-volume biogra- biography of C.S. Lewis. Well, Hal, thank you so much, my guest, Dr. Harry Lee Poe, Charles Colson, Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University. Um, as you wrote these um, these volumes, Hal, just a final question. Uh, can you tell us about how your personal impressions of C.S. Lewis changed or grew as you got to know him, as you researched him? I mean, there's a lot about the research we've not been able to talk to, talk about, of course. Yes. Well, um, I, I don't venerate C.S. Lewis and that, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but, um, but he is one of those uh, part of that cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. And 
in, in him, the grace of God, I think, is, is transparent because when he was a, a young man, uh, he was most unattractive. I would not have liked him. Um, he was arrogant. He was obnoxious. He was conceited. And what you see in his, you know, people focus on the intellectual ideas. But for me, the striking thing is how his character changed, hmm. how he was transformed as a person and became a lovely person um, who was generous and kind and considerate and um, loved the unlovely. And um, so I think that is, for me, the most powerful thing is to see uh, the impact on an individual life of um, what it means to know Christ. And um, so that was, that was delightful to be reminded of that. Dr. Harry Lee Poe, professor at Union University and author of The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From War to Joy, 1945 to 1963. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His People.